1: Uh, Today, I have Allison Spurgis, who is an associate professor of sociology at Trinity College with with also a position in the Women and Gender Studies Department, as well as Zoe Malio-Irwin, who is a qualitative sociologist currently working in the user experience tech industry. Welcome to the show, Zoe and Allison.
2: Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Michael. Good to see you again.
1: And today, we're going to be discussing decolonized self-care by O.R. Books 2023, and it is part of a larger series titled Decolonize That, Handbooks for the Revolutionary Overthrow of Embedded Colonial Ideas, and this is the third book in the series. Again, thank you for being uh, with us today, and I want to start off by asking, how did you come upon this title and decide to, to write this book together?
0: So I can kick us off, Allison, and obviously pop in here. i um- So it's kind of funny how this started. Alice and I were uh, longtime friends from grad school. Um, So we were both in the same doctoral program at the CUNY Grad Center, both uh, sociologists, both sociologists of embodiment and medical sociologists, health and illness. And uh, we established a friendship at that time and kept in touch after we both received our doctorate. So we would get together periodically and have these sort of winding conversations that would cover all sorts of topics from, you know, the personal to the political Uh, And then increasingly, we started talking about the fact that we shared some common health concerns and we're just sort of like uh, recounting the various things that we had tried to address these things and the ways in which we were kind of hopeful that they might work, but also sort of critical about the way they were framed or sold. Uh, and so suddenly uh, we realized there was maybe a bit more to unpack here. We had like a sociological interest as well as sort of an embodied stake in the kinds of things we were discussing.
1: And so the main focus of this book is on self-care and how to decolonize it. You know, I've heard self-care a lot and self-care is one of those concepts that are thrown around a lot and have a variety of definitions. But uh, what do you see self-care to be um, in, in terms of what you're writing about in this book?
2: Um, well, I can start with this briefly. Um, I would say, I mean, there's there's actually kind of like two origin stories here. Um, on the one hand, uh, we're definitely looking to um, movements, um, you know, radical revolutionary political movements of the 60s and 70s. So we're thinking about um, DIY health um, movements from, uh, you know, from black feminist circles to like the Jane Collective Um you know, basically, wherein groups of people who are historically marginalized and certainly were at the time and still are, um, would uh, fight for their right to kind of take care of themselves and their communities. Um, and this was often a response to uh, a medical system and governmental institutions that were failing them, you know, that were not supporting them. So um, really just groups, you know, taking things into their own hands and taking their health and health care into their own hands. So I'm thinking here about the Black Panthers. Um, and their community breakfast programs and thinking about the young lords um, and their before and after school programs wherein they would teach kids, um, you know, about their own cultural heritage and in their own language. Um, And I'm thinking about feminist movements as well. Um, So kind of DIY health care movements in that um, area. Um, But then there is another kind of story here, which is where um, patients were at various points in, I think, probably the 70s and 80s um, encouraged to kind of take on their own care, actually, kind of as a way to offset the work of doctors and the healthcare system. So, actually, Zoe, if you would, do you have something you could chime in there with at all? Or?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would say it was sort of part of this uh, larger moment um, in which, you know, many people sort of locate. Uh, the point in history where neoliberal ideas really start to get taken up. And so there's this broader idea that um, uh, the best way forward for society, for society, um, the most profitable and uh, a way for our society to um, advance the way in which most people can flourish is uh, a state in which the, there's a rollback of government programs and services um, and more is given over to the market. And as long as individuals have a wealth of information, they can therefore make the best choices from themselves unencumbered by, you know, what people might now say is the finger wagging of the nanny state. So there's this idea that, you know, we all can sort of be our own best CEO uh, advocating for ourselves, whether it's in, you know, general life chances or in health and wellness uh, by just taking it upon ourselves to do our own research, um, avail ourselves of the information out there, take up maybe expert advice, and then uh, you know live our lives accordingly, putting these things into practice. So part of this then is the idea that uh, health and wellness would be best served by just making information available to populations, uh, individuals having a responsibility to take it upon themselves to pursue healthy living, and follow up with their medical providers. So, and, you know, it's this kind of broader political and cultural moment that we find this happening. But then there's also, you know, these other threads that we're tracing through briefly in the book. I mean, we really do give a short history, but there's also this sort of disillusionment with the allopathic or biomedical system of medicine. Um, you know, perhaps uh, some of this comes from the 60s, the countercultural movement, a distrust of mainstream institutions. You could say perhaps some of this is uh, the sense that the field of medicine and the field of public health are not addressing chronic disease as well as they might have done with infectious disease in the decades prior. So there's these multiple different histories kind of all coming together at the same time.
1: So sort of opposing forces, right, of liberation with the different movements and call it grassroots self-care movements of people liberating themselves and uh, through food programs with the uh, the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords, and, and as well as the Jane Collective, and then on the other side, uh, this sort of oppression uh, with forced hands or, or forced care, as you call it. Uh, it, is that sort of these two different uh, call it pathways of 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 care.
2: Um, I would, I mean, I would actually bracket the kind of for, the forced care for a moment, and I would say we. In the book, I, th- I think that what we we are looking at primarily is the kind of c- current contemporary moment where we do see something kind of different happening and this kind of um, interesting tension um, wherein people, people know the history of these community programs, right? People know the history more and more of the disability justice movement, you know, and some of these revolutionary movements. And people, um, you know, kind of rightfully feel um sick and tired, right? People are sick and tired. People are, um, I mean, especially after, you know, over three years now of a global pandemic. Um, and people are rightfully distrustful of medicine, of kind of institutionalized um, medicine, you know, because it's failed them, you know, and because it's sexist and it's racist, you know, in too many instances. Um And so what we kind of look at is how that legacy is actually interestingly and sometimes kind of almost contradictorily taken up within the market. So it's almost like that kind of radical history is now commodified, you know, and it's or it's kind of framed in this way of like, do self-care because it's or care about community justice because it's good for you. It'll like improve your psychological health. And so we think that's really interesting, right, that there's this moment wherein um, most often actually, you know, cis, white, wealthy women in the global north are kind of really embedded in that history and in those practices um, in this kind of strange, contradictory way. And there is a tension, you know, between the individualism and the commodification, but then also like the real disillusionment with medicine um, and the kind of grasping for that kind of DIY history.
1: And that's a part of the uh, embedded embeddedness of the colonial ideas, how they've been taken on and commodified and, and I think taken on as even part of identities, particularly cis white women in the North. You were just talking about seeing it as part of who they are and in uh, um, that way maybe being liberating, but also... Um, well, also being somewhat contradictory.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then I guess to speak to the to the forced care question, um, I mean, maybe, um, Zoe, you could help me, but I I am just thinking about the ways that um different groups have been, you know, as as people have struggled against medicalization, right, and have said, you know, I want to do things DIY, I'm gonna do things my own way, and they've they've sought um what are often called complementary and alternative forms of medicine. Um, At the same time, you know, some groups have been have continued to be, you know, kind of hyper surveilled and regulated um, by medicine and by capitalist, um, you know, state based kind of surveillance, you know, so I am thinking about we are thinking in the book about the ways that, for instance, um, the abortion rights movement kind of really came to the fore and was very um, what, you know, did amazing work. You know very useful very powerful work um but sometimes certain people were privileged within that movement over others right and so we know that um you know as much as having the right to have an abortion and having control over your uh reproductive autonomy in that way is crucial there are other aspects of reproductive autonomy for instance the ability to build a family the ability to not be on birth control if you don't want to be on, you know, oral contraceptives or something like um, Depo Provera, you know, which we know was pushed upon Black women at various times. So just thinking again about those kinds of contradictions um, and how that is, can be kind of situated within this idea of what Michelle Murphy calls um, protocol feminism.
0: And one of the reasons why we're trying to point out these uh, contradictions in these histories, in these radical histories, even like in the Jane Collective is sort of not to cast blame, right? Like we're not uh, doubting the intentions of even these cis white women who now, now become sort of face of the history of the reproductive rights movement. Um, so we're not here to doubt their intentions, to do good in the world, to make change. Um, and we're not here to cast blame. In fact, we try to very clearly state that none of us are outside of these systems, these dominant systems of you know power and inequity. And we situate ourselves often sort of tongue in cheek in this as well, um, you know, pointing fun at our own proclivities towards, you know, kale smoothies or yoga or whatnot. Um, But just to sort of point out that there's no outside of these relationships of power, within these relationships of power, we all are sort of differently positioned and we want to stress that it's important to recognize your positionality there and be accountable uh, for any inadvertent harm that may come. Um, from our actions or our lack of information or knowledge about a given situation or a given history or um, how we interact in the world with others. But what we're trying to say is that one can intend to make change. So one could intend and make change in a reproductive rights uh, movement. One could intend to make change by offering some kind of self-care therapy or product. One could have the best intentions in those things, but still end up replicating uh, the status quo. And and so, again, it's like not to cast blame, but to point out these contradictions that all of us in some way, shape, or form embody because there's no outside of these historical moments in these relations of power.
1: And part of that comes with awareness, I think, instead of casting blame, but to take awareness and to to take account of ways in which oneself is part of the uh, self-care industry, uh, whether it be as consumer uh, or as you know promoter as well. Yeah. Excellent. And and you talk about um certain people having privileges. Who do you think the modern forms of self-care privilege most?
2: Um well we do. We talk a lot about in the book about gender. So we are, you know, and and whiteness. So we are thinking about um the ways that the self-care industry has really been has been kind of feminized. And it is this interesting thing where now, you know, there can be lady venture capitalists you know of a certain kind of ilk and background and that can happen and we you know we talk about winneth and coop you know as kind of a forerunner of this type of um thing but but also but not to just say it's you know it's it's obviously not just her you know i think she if, if anything she's become almost the um like a scapegoat <laughs> within within all of it or just kind of the person that people kind of focus on um but there is certainly um, a kind of a white feminization kind of of, of um, the self-care industry. And and we argue that that happens both in terms of form and content. So we we do talk about how actually the form of commodification, it looks a little different. Like we talk about how Goop started as like a kind of like a newsletter, like a friendly, like it's, it's kind of meant to mimic certain um, old forms of women's knowledge and kind of women's community. Um, we talk about things like contextual commerce and BFF marketing. So, the idea that like your jeans are never going to put you down and you should, you know, be able to really connect with this clothing line and you should be able to feel good about the designer and the owner of the line and kind of share like a, like a women's liberation story. Um, so, yeah, so there's a lot about gender here, um, definitely white white gender white white femininity um i don't think it's only women i mean there if if you also look back at various other forms of kind of self-care we can look at things like um well zoe could probably jump in here too but like the is it bulletproof the
0: yeah <laughs> bulletproof. yeah yeah
2: <laughs> yeah you know things like dopamine fasting um there's definitely kind of more masculine like a kind of like silicon valley uh style um, masculine kind of approach to some of this, but a lot of it we think is is targeted at this point more toward women.
1: And with this privileging sum, does that mean that there are others who are left out and uh, it furthers injustice, injustice to those who may already be oppressed in other areas?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's this interesting thing because a lot of these products are sold um, in a way that you can say is inspirational but also aspirational. Um so um, but at the same time, and it, this, again, we're constantly you know pointing at these contradictions. But so there's this idea of the, you know, uh, elite white women of the global north who are often the face and the leaders of this movement of, for self-care and these this market, um that they're sort of somewhat ex- exceptional. They're someone you should aspire to be like. But at the same time, there's this universalism, right? Like if you just also do this thing, um, even if you do the budget version, right? Like maybe you can't go to the, you know, $4,000 Goop conference, but you can, you know, maybe buy something off the website that's much more affordable or, uh, you know, it's some other version you might find on Amazon that you too can have self-care. You can just have like the budget version. So, you know, while we're supposed to aspire, like obviously these are the best forms, the, form, the Goop forms, the $4,000 forms, whatever it is, you know, and you can get your, uh, version as well and and you should actually because um this suggests that you're sort of taking care of yourself that you're making this space space for yourself you're restoring some kind of originary state of health and you know authentic state of who you really are but you're also optimizing yourself at the same time to you know withstand the rigors and the anxieties of modern life and maybe even excel in that climate at the same time
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I I see that being a uh, contradictory as well in terms of belonging to a self-care club, call it that, I guess. This sense of collective individualism, wanting to, it even has the word self in self-care, right? So becoming self, becoming individualistic, but also while being part of a a larger enterprise, so maybe collective individualism. So do you see the enterprise of self-care as being one that is, uh, call it individualist? focusing on, on an individual, uh, identity.
2: Yeah, um, absolutely. And actually to tie this back to your last question, which I feel like, um, I think I could maybe say a little tiny bit more about too. Um, it, I, I think that that a lot of this does happen, you know, it, when certain women in many cases in in, in our book and in, in this work, um, are are privileged you know and are kind of benefiting um it is the case that other women are not right and so we you know we don't do any kind of like deep ethnographic unpacking of the global political economy of the self-care industry but we do point to different trends um you know we have data data that suggests you know kind of just the absolute um uh, disproportion, you know, of, of where the money is kind of flowing and how, and how the, how the industry is operating around the world. Um, so we are thinking, you know, in that kind of global way. And then we are also thinking even just like kind of on a national scale. Um, uh, what we, uh, another contradiction actually that we point to is the ways in which, um, sometimes there is a kind of diversity or multicultural rhetoric that we think is kind of taken up in some of these areas, like some of the discourse surrounding the products or the lifestyles or the exercise regimes or whatever it is. Um, But we ultimately argue that it's pretty facile, that it doesn't, you know, that the way that diversity, that kind of DEI initiatives, right, like diversity, equity, and inclusion, um, that they are incorporated, but that they really fall short of justice. in so far as it's part of a marketing scheme. It's part of a kind of, um, you know, a a very superficial um, image of multiculturalism that isn't like a deep kind of um, excavation of that concept, you know, or like attention to that. Um, Yeah, so I think ultimately at the end of the day, it is absolutely individualist. Um, And even when it's like women, the idea is women getting together to... Uh, to have some kind of community to share in something, it's again, it's pretty superficial. Um, it doesn't tend to be actually oriented toward justice or real community building.
1: Uh, it sounds like there's a lot of camp mentality going on in terms of self-care and in the divide and the boundaries and between um, well, who is served by different self-care um, products or initiatives. I don't- uh, however, self-care is around, has been around for a while, and and it's a pretty big thing. You write a bit in the book about the amount of profits that self-care has made annually, not only in the United States, but globally. Could you talk a bit more about this profit that has come from the from self-care?
0: Yeah, I mean, so um, it, it, there's a section in the book in which we have some, I would say the figures are maybe a couple years old now, so you may have some more more recent data, but, um, but, uh, it, for, we had felt figures for the wellness industry, I should say, because that's a little bit broader than the self-care market. And so this is going to, the wellness industry is going to include things like, uh, you know, the spa industry or, um, uh, self-care tourism or diet and exercise, all these sorts of things, healthy eating, weight loss, um, wellness, tourism, beauty, all these sorts of things. Uh, but I think that the the last figure we had in there, the projection was that by twenty twenty five this would be something like a seven trillion dollar industry, globally speaking.
1: And yeah. oh go ahead, Allison.
0: Um yeah, no, that just that it was um I think prior
2: to the beginning of the COVID nineteen pandemic, it was at, I believe, four point nine, it was almost at five trillion. Yeah. And then there was a dip um in the first um, year of the COVID-19 pandemic. But yeah, the projection is that it will actually be over seven trillion by twenty twenty-five.
1: And the neoliberalism, I, I think, the way that it's being presented has to do with how self-care is not only uh, in the United States of America, but also um, expanding beyond the borders and becoming a global, uh, a global call it system or a global product that is infiltrating other countries. Is that right? Uh,
0: I mean, I, I would say that those ideas that. Um, the origins of neoliberalism definitely are are more global in nature um so is that what you're asking or
1: yeah so um and and that was in um in reference to so how is self-care um starting to take root globally and um what makes it profitable yeah let's just go with that what makes it so profitable so that it can be what makes self-care so attractive and profitable in nations even beyond the United States?
2: Um, well, I think that, I mean, just to go back to the very beginning of the conversation, you know, people are people are tired. People are overworked. People are burnt out. You know, people across many different identity categories, you know, and the kind of lifestyle experiences Um, Obviously, the kind of stress and trauma and burnout that we talk about is concentrated more um, in people who are poor, people who are in other ways marginalized, you know, um, including racially, including in terms of embodiment and disability. Um, So that is absolutely true. But I also think that people in general in this moment are tired, you know, and are not feeling great and, you know, Autoimmune diseases are on the rise. And people, again, have felt really disillusioned and unsupported by traditional medicine. Um, So I think that given that that's the case, self-care in a variety of forms has a lot of purchase. Right. It is very attractive to people, um, you know, and and we already live in a very individualized society, right? If, if we And if we think about just the tenets of neoliberalism, I mean, it is a global system, right? It is like capitalism, neoliberal capitalism, racial capitalism is global and it, it has to be global in order to function the way that it does um, and to be so encompassing. So, I mean, so it, again, I, I think that, I mean, even if you look at the breakdown as we do in the introduction of kind of how the self-care industry or the wellness industry, as I pointed out, um kind of what's included in that it it already incorporates things that are global in nature that are crossing borders you know and nation state you know lines because it's talking about things like real estate it's talking about like hot springs it's talking about the spa industry you know these things are by nature bound up with tourism um and they are getting their tendrils you know into these different Their tentacles into these different areas.
1: Tendrils. I don't. And you're talking capitalism too, so it's they're asked to be profitable in order for it to continue to span the uh, span the earth and to go to other places. Uh, If it wasn't profitable, it would not be landing in locations where where things that began in America would would normally not land.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's an anecdote that we begin. the chapter that's on uh, the idea of clean eating uh, and gluten-free diets, and this idea of the you know the seat to health and wellness is through the gut. We begin this with an anecdote about um, a uh, health coach who uh, was a, um, a coach for a very well-known that shall remain nameless, but trust us, you've heard of them, uh, um, healthy eating and weight loss company. And in this meeting, she was leaving. Um, she said, You know that uh, she loved to see the look on people's faces when they came in and learned about the program um because she could see it was one of hope. And then she said that you know, I believe that's our biggest product. Our biggest product is hope.' The part that's missing from what she says is that um, you know in the long term in the short term, people can lose weight by just about any mean. I mean, you could eat like jelly beans all week and you'd probably lose weight. but you know in the long term, like 90% of diets fail. that's a conservative estimate, right So she's not wrong when she's saying their biggest product is hope, right because if you sell hope but offer a service that is going to fail in the long term but yet keep underlying uh, underlining, the idea that you know if people just work at it hard enough and just invest in themselves and keep at it, they will ultimately have success. Like that's a perfect product, right? <laughs> that's just going to keep people coming back and spending the money for something that's ultimately not going to work. And so, in some ways, we use that anecdote to to point out these larger problems with the self care industry. Like in the short term, people need care, right? People are suffering; they're stressed out. We're living in this increasingly uncertain world, a world full of precarity. Um, you know, people need something to heal from the traumas that they're experiencing. And, and so by all means, whatever that is, if it's a spa day, you know, if it's like saying no to a meeting, if it's, you know, a yoga retreat, like people need to do what they're going to do. But what we're you know trying to point out is that's not enough because ultimately the root causes Of what's keeping us all traumatized and unwell in the first place um, are not being addressed, and and so you know, and we understand that, like conceptually, you can understand that, um, you know, it's it's one thing to understand. I keep saying the word understand. Conceptually, it's easier to grasp the fact that the origins of uh, poor health outcomes, negative health outcomes, morbidity and mortality are much broader than just individual behavior, right, and that their ultimate root causes are much more systemic in nature, like the social and structural determinants of health. It's it's one thing to grasp that uh, intellectually, but what to do about it, that's much more difficult, right? So it can therefore feel like much easier uh, to Just invest in your own health, like, well, you know, these are things are the broader problems. I don't know what I can do about that, but I can control what I put in my mouth. I can have kale. I can do yoga. You know, um, I can invest in myself in that way. And, And so, you know, we understand that it's easier said than done to say that these root causes are the things that ultimately need to be addressed, but the fact is they are what need to be addressed. Otherwise, you know, this selling of hope and continuing keeping people on the cycle of searching and searching and searching for something that's going to heal these traumas and make us well is just never going to amount to much because the root causes are not being addressed.
1: As I like to say in sociology, the sum is greater than its part. Health and wellness is just one institution. Uh, however, it, it's it's blurred and made more complicated by several other institutions that are part of society and part of our everyday life. So it is something that is complicated and difficult to want to to solve by one swipe when it's a problem of several uh, paper cuts,
2: yeah, absolutely. yeah. And so just to add briefly, yeah, and I mean even even just like health, like what it means is like it's like it's just huge, right? It's not because it's not just your individual body and its health. It's like we can talk about the health of our planet. We can talk about the health of our, of our um, communities. You know, it's, we are definitely in a time of um, some compromised health, I think, structurally.
1: Yes. And unfortunately, we're not fortune tellers as sociologists. However, um in, in this book, you you identify some potential solutions to this inequality and oppression of self-care. Uh, what are what are some of those solutions that uh, that you identify?
2: Um I mean, I could start by just saying we um, you know, we do we draw from this um decolonial framework, you know, and we take it really seriously. we um you know, I think we had reservations at the beginning of this project because we think that de- decolonization is a really big project. And we take it really seriously. And we don't want to just, you know, use that term lightly. Um, so we, we know, we consider the words of theorists like um, Eve Tuck and um, Kay Wayne Yang, who argue that decolonization is not a metaphor. Um, and we think about other, um, you know, de- and anti-colonial scholars um, and activists and organizers who, you know, utilize that. Um, and I think that ultimately, you know, we just, we come out and, and argue that, we need more care and less self. Um, it's kind of a simple mantra, but it's kind of just this idea that um, what would it mean to decenter the self in that equation? Um, and that part of that would actually be a kind of return to the politics that we center at the beginning of the book, you know, and kind of thinking about the words um, of Audre Lorde, you know, that um, uh, self-care is an act of political warfare you know, for someone who is a marginalized um, individual. That's not the complete quote, (laughs) but but so you get the point, Um, you know, and just, yeah, thinking about the, thinking about the disability justice movement and thinking about ACT UP and, you know, um, the AIDS activism, you know, in the 80s and 90s, you know, just groups that really said, okay, our health is being really compromised. You know, we are not getting what we need. Um, We're going to stand together as a community. We're going to fight um together you know as members of a group um you know who have something in common but also the idea that you don't have to this is something i think about a lot do you have to like be able to fully understand someone else's position in order to fight for them or in order to call for justice um and i would argue no you know we don't you don't have to be able to fully understand every single um experience that someone else has um so i think that that's really where we kind of end up is how can we um take the the fact that people are actually not all in the same place like we are all tired and you know many of us are very tired and very sick and have all kinds of um, health issues going on but we are in different places you know because of privilege and money and all of the different things you know that put us in different places um so in spite of that how can we take care of ourselves, but also take care of each other within that kind of messy situation of late capitalism and this climate crisis and all of the things that we're constantly kind of barraged by um, every day.
1: Uh, so the, uh, in some ways, the products and services of self-care becomes scapegoats for the large problem of capitalism and potentially creating communities of care rather than self-care units might be might be a way to uh, revolutionize and create change within uh, within the system of care. Be, and, and and the Young Lords, that, that's a perfect example, or even the Black Panther Party and how they revolutionized, came together as a unit, and, and it doesn't require sympathy, it doesn't require necessarily walking a mile in one's shoes, but instead taking into consideration where that person might be, which is empathy rather than sympathy.
2: Yeah, that's a really good way to put it. Um, so, yeah, and I would just say, um, you know, to add to that, we, we do talk about some kind of specific things. You know, we, we don't claim to have all the answers, obviously. And we, we do say we, we, we kind of gestured or explicitly say that we need to um, rely on the, the concerns um, of the most marginalized. Right. So we need to look to people who are the, are in the most marginalized positions to kind of understand what direction we all need to take. Um, to help to fix the situation. Um, but we do, you know, we, we talk about not only communities coming together to support each other, you know, in larger and small ways. So some of it might just be kind of mutual aid projects It might be community care, just like in your neighborhood, um, in your building. Um, we talk about, you know, we talk about labor, we talk about tenants organizing, you know, we talk about the kinds of mutual aid work that people do um, every day. But we also do point at larger structural at the at the need for larger structural change. You know, so in terms of labor organizing, but also um universal healthcare. Um, but Zoe, do you want to add anything to the list of things that we actually do see?
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, you know, following um a lot of the work we've been inspired by uh, for decolonization scholar activists, it's this idea that you're simultaneously building and dismantling at the same time. So that decolonization is this iterative process. Like it's not an end point. There's not at one point in which everyone just calls it and we're like, well, we've arrived, you know, it's done. The project is over. Like it's, it's iterative. We're constantly having to adjust along the way. Um, but it's ultimately very much a communal project where again, differently positioned um, to these different forces that we've been pointing at, but collectively we are trying to build something that will take the place of what uh, we are living with now, these like toxic uh, systems and structures and ways of relating to one another and instead replace them with different ways of being in the world with one another, different kinds of social institutions, but also different ways of relating to the land. Um, And so, you know, there are some things, uh, especially for white people who maybe want to, think about how they might become part of a decolonization process that we try to point to. And and one thing we would say is, yes, yeah, self-care, right? Take care of yourself. People are sick and tired. We need to survive this moment in order to fight for justice, but also self-enrichment, right? Um, so potentially consider learning more about these different histories and these different movements or these different collectives that exist now. Um, donate to them if you have the economic means to do so. Um, you know protest in whatever way you can whether that's in the streets or online um you know get involved or volunteer your time if you can if that's wanted and it may not always be right um uh but there are other ways in which we can support right get people's messages out donate our time and money um it might be getting involved in local collectives in your own community or um Learning about what's going on and trying to support those other collectives. Uh, so we, you know, we try to point to a number of different ways in the short term people can get involved, but that it's going to be this iterative process as we try to rebuild in the shadow of what we're also trying to tear down at the same time.
1: And these range from national to regional to even local. I, I right? I, they're they're not just one big collective that you have to go. But the, I, I think of at William Penn University, uh, where I'm an assistant professor at, and we have an organization that recently, um, uh, only a few years back, actually started up on our campus. It's a BIPOC organization uh, to bring awareness to um, not only black and indigenous, but also uh, all persons of color and uh, to bring awareness of the needs within these rural communities that may not necessarily be fully aware of um of how they're not recognizing the full spectrum of uh, of, of race and and ethnicity uh, across the whole community. Uh, and other ways that I see on campus are local barbers on campus who are providing uh, you know uh, haircuts and things like that on campus for persons of color because there isn't anybody in the community that they're aware of who they would trust messing with their, well, uh, providing them with haircuts.
2: Yeah. I mean, we talk about like simple stuff too, like that, you know, we definitely talk about, um, you know, different collectives. where we both live in New York city. So, so talking about different collectives, like in this area on the East coast, um, but also that are, you know, that are national, you know, or that kind of spread beyond this area. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, is there, is there like a local group you can support who does, acupuncture you know I mean like we're not against those things right I mean people do need things like acupuncture and to stretch their bodies and do things with their bodies to make them feel good and feel better and especially the most marginalized and traumatized among us need those things so it's we try to look to groups who um, offer support or who center who center the people in communities who are who are marginalized right so if you're you know I live in Brooklyn you know which is a very gentrified place um you know is are, are there collectives i can support you know who will give offer scholarships or funds like to you know to offer therapy to people who are actually like from brooklyn you know from the neighborhood especially if they're racially marginalized um you know are there it just what's happening kind of all on the ground so not only in terms of that type of care but also just what's happening on the ground that like i can plug into that is trying to offer mutual aid you know and again taking um you know taking my cues from people who are actually doing the work you know trying to find out who's doing the work and how to plug in best as a person as in my case as a white person you know um, yeah I think we're, we, we, we grapple with that throughout the book you know what are ways to actually kind of bring this down um, to, you know to, to, to earth in that way but it, it, it's hard it is it's really hard because you know we do live in such an individualized world And we are often we just kind of, I think, you know, despite moments during the pandemic where I at least felt like there was hope and there were people as devastating and terrible as things were, including with the, you know, the murder of George George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, you know, and all of the terrible violence that occurred during the pandemic. There were moments where people seemed to come together. Um, I am feeling now like people are now feeling isolated again and kind of alienated, but it's always a it's a struggle. Right. And just how to support each other. How do we find each other? Um yeah.
1: And Zoe and uh, Allison, I also like that you brought up uh, online ways of of assisting. It doesn't have to be on ground, but you could but people can also be advocates and supporters of communities of care in a virtual environment.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, yeah, there's this idea that um that protest, uh and expressing our, our rage uh, for the injustices that and the terror of of what has occurred and what is occurring involves being in the street, right? But there's a way in which that can be really exclusionary for people uh, with chronic illnesses, for instance. Uh, maybe that wax in way and who you know don't have the um, energy or capacity to you know be out in the street, or people who maybe um, don't want to take the risk of being arrested because they might because they're trans or because they're uh, a person of color and they have different relationships to the carceral system than, you know, a cisgendered white person would be. you know there's all different kinds of reasons in which why being in the streets protesting, um though necessary, obviously, um is not the only way to to express your uh, outrage. And to call for uh, justice in different ways of being in the world. So, you know, certainly being online, uh, tweeting, you know, sharing information, getting the word out, um, you know, spreading uh, fundraisers for when people have been incarcerated after a protest and, you know, helping raise funds online for people who need to get bailed out. I mean, there's any number of ways in which we can participate. And just to briefly add,
2: um, and also just, I mean, the work of organizing, if we think about labor organizing, if we think about tenants rights organizing, if we think about just various work that does happen on the ground, there is often also online components that occur, right? Like you need to organize lists, you need to get the word out, you need to email people, you need to coordinate, you need to get food, you need to get child care for events and actions and things that are happening so there's always there's so many different ways to plug into to to work that's happening but the point is i think for us in the book is to say that plug in (laughs) you know like if there is a way you know if if, you know just try to find what's happening and plug in and um and try to you know balance taking care of yourself you know with also offering um whatever capacities you do have to that type of, of other work
1: excellent well, thank you again for uh, for joining me on the show today to discuss your uh, your new book that you co authored, "Decolonized Self Care" by O R Books. Um, and what I what I want to close with, though, one dying question, and I think maybe we'll uh, we'll handle this as individual questions for both of you. Where what, what's your next project? Where are you going from here? And uh, we're going to start with Zoe and then uh, Allison.
0: Yeah. Um... I'm honestly, yeah, I'm honestly not sure to <laughs> Yeah. I, I don't know. At this point I'm still trying to figure things out. Speaking of that, you know, economic precarity, I was just laid off. And so my next project is trying to secure employment, to be honest. But uh yeah. <laughs> um
2: yeah, and I well, I'm <laughs> I'm also um at a bit of a crossroads. Um I I'm really interested in continuing to to do work on care. um I'm interested at this point in uh, not exactly sure what what my next research project will be, but I am interested in um, sexual robotics and kind of various other types of technologies of care, like kind of technological technologized care assistance um, and different kinds of companionship, um including through things like sex bots so that's something i'm interested in exploring more um and yeah but i'm also really open and um i'm also really interested in continuing to do research on self-help and and actually other types of therapy so kind of beyond beyond self-help but also community help and community forms of um of therapy and support
1: Excellent. Well, I look forward to reading the next book that both of you have out. So keep me in mind once it gets published and keep me in mind as you start to work on your next project. I'm always interested in hearing uh, the newest of scholarship that sometimes gets stuck in these little chambers that that, (laughs) do not get infiltrated and, and shared with others. So thank you again for being part of this show. This has been another episode of New Books in Sociology. Have a great day.
0: Thanks so much.
2: Thanks, Michael. Have a great one.